Back in my in my last job, our boss always said, "How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time." And that is a novel. A novel is an is an intellectual elephant, and it is a one page at a time operation for sure. Welcome to Creative How. On this episode, we have Matthew Norman. Jed, I'm looking forward to it. This is a great episode, Sean. Matt Norman is somebody that you and I have worked with uh, extensively in the past, and he's a great person. He's also a two-time published novelist of novels called Domestic Violets, and We're All Damaged, with a third on the way. So if you're uh, an aspiring novelist, or if you're a copywriter who wants to write fiction, or if you're somebody who wants to learn about the process, or simply somebody who wants to get more creative, Matt is going to give you some really amazing information. Tons of information for this one. I mean, literally wake up, start writing, and also figure out how to get paid. I didn't think he was going to go into that, but he does. So hang around for some great information. Matthew Norman. All right, everybody. Welcome to Creative How. We've got Matthew Norman here with us today, and he is nothing if not prolific. He is a two-time published novelist with a third on the way. He is an amazing copywriter from an advertising standpoint, and maybe his best quality of all, social media. If you don't follow him, you should. The Norman Nation, Twitter, uh, Instagram. I don't know about Facebook, but do you even need? Not anymore. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So welcome, Matt. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. This is incredible. This is this is, this is is a guy that Sean and I have worked with many times in the yep. past, and we're just couldn't be more excited. Yeah, there's a lot of angles to take here, I think. Um, but first, we're going to talk more about Matt, the Matthew, the novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the copywriting stuff might sneak in just because sure. of our relationship and how how far we all go back. But uh, we'll try to keep it on task. The real goal here is peel back some layers, talk about what it's what it takes, the effort it takes to write a novel. Um, because here at Creative, how um, we're going to have a conversation, right, and everything. But ultimately, at the end of the day, when people turn off this podcast. They feel like they can turn it off and then at whatever time that of day they are or the next day, they can immediately have maybe the first few steps to take in maybe if they're, you know, wanting to be a novelist, they can kind of go and do that. They know what types of places to go for inspiration. They'll know maybe the first steps when they turn on their computer, but the whole goal is action right? coming out of this. And I, hopefully you can give some insight on that. And I think you will. We're really excited about that. Okay. How do you write a book, Matt? Wow, you just open up Microsoft <laughs> Word and you just start typing. Uh, That's what I thought. No, it's, you know, I've, I've thought about it a lot and I've written several books. I've had two published. I wrote a novel for my graduate thesis, which was never published. It exists only in the uh, George Mason stacks at the library. Um, you know, it, every idea for every novel starts with a very small idea, you know, and you don't sit down and think, well, I've got 300 pages and you just type it up. That's not, that's not the way it works. I wish it was the way it works, but it starts with a very small idea and you just sit down and you pick at it and you pick at it every single day and you start to layer things onto it. You know, every, I think a novel to be a novel, it has to have several storylines, you know, two, three, four storylines. You start out with one, you start to layer on more and more. And, um, I've always been a little bit everyday kind of guy, especially because I've never had the opportunity until very recently to make novel writing, fiction writing, my, my only real job. You know, I've always had to kind of fit it in, you know, two hours here at night, whatever. 
But if you do that consistently a little bit every day, you'll be amazed how many pages you pile up. You know, if you one or two pages a day, that's 40 pages in a month. That's like, a, that's 40 pages. That's, you know, a half an inch thick pile of paper <laughs> that you have written in 40 days. You yeah. know I mean? And, you know, back in my, in my last job, our boss always said, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. And that is a novel. A novel is an, is an intellectual elephant and it is a one page at a time operation for sure. Very cool. So, all right, let's get into, I think I've talked to you a bit, little bit about this before because I'm mm-hmm. jealous of you. You touched on it a little bit, but what has your regimen, your routine been? And I feel like maybe go back to even um, when you were living outside the U.S. and before you were a two-time published novelist. Like this is, to Sean's point, m- maybe some of the people who are listening to this are writers already or mm-hmm. maybe they want to become writers. But like how has it been and how has it changed and what's your routine all about? Right. The routine is, you know, a lot of writers are asked about their routine and they answer it honestly. Everyone's a little bit different. And so my routine, I don't want my routine to be intimidating to somebody else or frustrating to somebody else who has a different routine. You know, the caveat to that question is always do whatever helps you create pages. You know, think of it that way. But for me, you know, there's been two stage, there's been several stages to my writing life. I think about it when I was in my early 20s, uh, when I had zero responsibilities in a job that required nothing of my brain. And then there was when I got married, and then I had a more difficult job. And then there was when I had kids, and that was anybody who has kids understands what that means, you know. And it, now there's this new stage that I've just entered where this is my, this is my job. I don't have another job. Um, but the regimen has always kind of stayed the same, and it's – Setting up a time, and for me, it's always been nighttime. Other people are morning writers. God bless them. If you're a morning writer, do it, right? But for me, it's always been nighttime. So after work, you know, back in my pre-kid days, I would maybe work out after work or something, and I would sit down at about 8 every night, and I would not get up, you know, quote, unquote. I would wander and pace, of course, but I would be writing until about 10.30 or 11 every night. And sometimes... I would write a lot. Sometimes I'd feel great. I'd knock out pages and I'd feel awesome and I'd have this downhill momentum. And sometimes I would stare at the blinking cursor and not know what to say. I would be totally stuck and it would be awful and I would hate myself. But I treated it like a job. You know, that's if you have a job, you can't leave that job unless you have a really good excuse, you know. And sometimes you're raring to go and sometimes you just go flying through it. And sometimes you kind of sit there and stare and struggle. But, uh, the trick is to just do the sitting and do the staring and just do it every single night. So okay. You touch on kind of like, I think we we're circling around the idea of inspiration mm-hmm. and having read, you know, both your novels to date and um, one seemed to draw pretty heavily from what I could imagine being your everyday life mm-hmm. just with the names changed. Mm-hmm. Second one, a little less so, which maybe you know was intentional, but like how isn't, how important I guess is my question that, you know, for you as a writer that you will always pull from your life or are you trying to get away from that? And that was just, was that, was that easiest to do at the start and now you're trying to get past that or will you continue to kind of draw on life experiences? You know, one of my favorite writers is a guy named Richard Russo. He's written a ton of books. He won the Pulitzer, I think in 2001 for, um, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. It's escaping me, but he won the Pulitzer and he's a great writer. Nobody's fool, straight man. Uh, were his books. And he said that 
it's this it's this pattern that writers have when they start out. Their first couple of novels are drawn heavily from their own lives. And for me, my first novel really is. I mean, it, you know, there's the setup is very much like my life. Uh, it, the book is called Domestic Violence, and it's about a, an advertising copywriter. Uh, and I was an advertising copywriter at the time. And always will be, man. And, Come and on. always will be Let's at heart. Uh, absolutely. Um, there's a ton of stuff in the book that didn't happen to me, but the basic setup, you know, was drawn from my own life. And uh, the second book, less so. And this third book that is going to come out next year, even less so than those other two. So I, I feel like that is kind of the pattern that works. And I think that that's actually really kind of exciting because yeah. whenever you're writing, when I was writing my first novel, I remember when I, when I sold it, I was very excited, but I was also thinking to myself, do I have anything left? Am I done? Did I tell my story? And I hope that I didn't. That was like this little voice in your head. There's all these voices in your head saying, you're going to fail. And I was like, well, maybe I'm just a one book a guy. And then I sat down and started writing the second one. I was like, oh, okay, this, you know, and the third one, you know, and, and so it's been very exciting. And I remember after I finished this third novel um, that I just recently sold, I gave it to a trusted reader, a good friend of mine. And he was reading, he read the book and he had a lot of feedback. And the book was, uh, it was in rough shape at the time. So he had a lot of very constructive, necessary feedback. But the, the setup of the book, he asked me if I found myself in the situation that these characters were in, is this how the, the reality would play out? And I had to tell him that it wasn't. And I think that he looked at that maybe as a negative thing, but I was like, that's a good thing. That's exciting. I'm starting to create things that I haven't experienced, that I haven't lived. And I think it's just growing as a, as a writer and growing as a, as a creative. So as you've gone on, the percentage of your life experience is getting less and less. And that's that's actually the exciting part because you're creating something from nothing. You're not almost using your, your life as a crutch. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I had at the time in my early twenties, I was working for a company and I didn't like my job. And so I took a version of myself, put that guy in a version of the company I worked for and then built a plot around that. I didn't do that with a second book. And I certainly didn't do that with the third book. And you're absolutely right. It's just, it's, it's starting to look outside of yourself for inspiration and for storytelling. You, so for your second book, We're All Damaged, um, I think it's really um, interesting when Andy goes back to his, his family from his childhood and his mom is a political radio uh, host. What, what kind of, my point is, what kind of research do you have to do to figure out what different kinds of people's careers are all about so that you can write about them in such an educated and actually hilarious way. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, a lot of writers, uh, they, they're big researchers up front and I get, I get really impatient with that. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not good at, at researching until I need to. And so what I, what I typically do is I will just start writing. I, I, I think best and I plot best and outline best when I'm writing, you know, and I, when I find myself really, really faking it, like really not, I'm kind of making it up, pulling things out of my, you know, out of my ass, basically, that's when I know that I need to go and do some research. And so what I did, and this actually pained me personally, but uh, I watched a lot of Fox News clips on YouTube. And I'm very diametrically opposed to, you know, Fox News. But I was watching and I was getting the rhythms and the things that they have to say and the way that people look and 
the women uh, are, are almost all very, very blonde. And I was, I, I just, I was like, okay, I get this. I get what they're doing. I get the platform and the way they're presenting themselves. And so uh, that character that you referenced, Jed, is, is, tr- is basically trying out to get on Fox News. And she did, she would have done the same research that I did. And so she dyes her hair blonde, you know, and she talks in that way. And uh, so a lot of people research first, like I said, but I just, I get frustrated with that. So I just write until I, until I don't know what to write. And then I research. Do you drink heavily? Let's just, I've been wanting, I mean, like uh, in regards to helping you write. I also want to come back to he's full shit. (laughs) Well, that's, that's true too. Like what role does alcohol play? Not much, very little. I don't, I don't think I've ever done alcohol is, I, I enjoy drinking a lot. I don't think alcohol has ever helped me do anything productive or constructive in my entire life. You know, and, and I'm a lot better looking when I'm drinking for sure. And a lot funnier, but other than that, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I just, it tends to make me just want to go to sleep for the most part. And so I, I, I do go the opposite way where I drink a lot of caffeine when I'm writing and when I'm getting ready to write. So I, I bring Pepper. it up. Dr. Pepper. I bring it up as opposed to bring it down. Uh, creative housters out there, just, just as you're following along at home, this is really just one opinion of alcohol in the writing process. Don't, <laughs> don't, I wouldn't take this one as gospel. No. We have plenty more writers to talk to in our future. <laughs> Absolutely. They'll this have is one different... opinion of one man. Alcohol's great. I'm a good drinker after I've written, you know, that's celebratory. Yeah. That's right. um, Three pages. Boom. All right. I'm going to go the other way. I feel like, um, since, you know, I've known you a long time and, mm-hmm. and, I think I've, I've known you since you got your first book published and till now. And I'm guessing you probably haven't always felt perfectly great about the status of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Like how you powered through things yeah. and just, I feel like that would be a struggle that anyone might face. Yeah. It, you know, the first book I, I didn't, it was, I was younger. I had a lot more energy. I didn't have kids. And so, and for a while I didn't have a job. Um, I, my wife and I were living in London when I did the majority of writing, uh, the majority of the heavy lifting for domestic violence. And during the financial crisis, I got laid off. And so I didn't have a job. And I didn't, it was the greatest thing ever to happen to me because I didn't have a job and I was living in a foreign country. And so I couldn't really look for another job. And so I just wrote all day. It was amazing. I would wake up with my wife, send her off to work, and then I would write all day. I would walk to a sandwich shop uh, by Paddington Station and eat a sandwich for lunch. Then I would come back and write. And I, you know, I, I kind of burned through domestic violence pretty quickly. And then I had it rejected by literally the entire publishing industry. I mean, it was, it felt so good. And I was like, this is a good book. This is funny. And it's, it's good. You know, I felt really good about the book. And then it was just rejected by everybody. And you know, my agent tried to sell it and I got a lot of good, nice rejections. Like we like this, it's good, but it's just, eh, you know, it's not right. And I think that's where I learned a pretty valuable lesson. And it took me well into the second book to, to figure this out is that it matters what you're writing about because the publishing industry is a business and it met in 70%. This is a fact that was just given to me the other day, actually, 70% of literary novels are purchased by women. And my first two novels both have male narrators, first person. They're just, they're, they're categorized. I hate this term, but they're categorized as like lad lit, you know? And 
women read women and they're tentative about reading men. You know, they, they're going to go out and buy something. They're going to spend 13 or $20 on something. They tend to gravitate toward women. And so that was an uphill battle that I was creating for myself. Mm. And I created it again with my second book because I did essentially the same you know, point of view, same male narrator. And I had a big challenge. The biggest challenge I've ever had as a, as a creative person in between my first and second book, my wife and I had two kids really quickly. And anybody who has kids understands what that means. My time and energy were absolutely zapped. And so it took me like four and a half years to write my second novel. And in that time, my first publisher, HarperCollins, essentially dropped me. Uh, they saw an early version of the of We're All Damaged. Didn't really like it, nor should they have, because it was just, it was a floundering 50-some pages that ended up being a lot different. Uh, no, the finished book ended up being a lot different. And so four years or so, four and a half years later, when I finished the book, they, they said no. They said too much time had passed. And so I was kind of back to square one in terms of publishing. And it was very, very depressing to get dropped because you start out and it's like, oh, my God, I sold a book to a major publisher. This is the beginning of my career. You know, I'm so excited. And then they basically, you know, gave me the stiff arm four years later. And I ended up uh, at Amazon, which was fantastic. And they love the book. And do they have books? They do have books. Uh, they sell books, uh, a lot of them. Um, so I was at Amazon, a little late publishing, uh, an imprint of Amazon. And the book did really well. And, you know, it, it did well enough to kind of give me this idea that maybe this is what I could do. And that was, that's kind of the stage that I'm just entering now. I've just recently left corporate America, left advertising, and this is what I'm doing full time. And I just sold my third novel and, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. That's so, incredible. Yeah. If, if that all hadn't worked out in terms of that process, what would have been your other alternative? Would you have tried to self publish e-publishing anything in that realm? That's a good question. And I, I don't, I don't know exactly what I would have done. Uh, self publishing is something that exists now. It used to, Kind of not exist, and then it existed in a uh, in a in a strange way where it was basically the equivalent of just kind of printing out a bunch of books and giving them to your friends because distribution is the thing. I mean, you can't get a book to people that you don't actually know if you're self-publishing. But the internet has obviously changed all that. There are very few success stories of truly self-publishing uh, and having it really work out in literary fiction. There's mystery writers. Uh, who are, you know, cranking out, you know, serialized books and episodic books, and they're doing really well, and God bless them. But, you know, for the types of books that I'm writing, there's really no precedent for success with self-publishing. So I don't know what I would have done. I probably just would have kept writing, and my agent would have kept sending them out, and, you know, who, who knows? I'm, I'm glad that this one worked out. I'm trying to think, you know, someone who's just starting out, and, you know, there's that whole side of post-writing process that we kind of want to peel back the layers on. Like you've got your book, you feel pretty good about it. You've maybe, you know, test read it with some, some folks who've helped you construct it, construct it. Then what do you do? Like, what is that process? Yes. There are a lot of barriers to entry for publishing and they're very, very frustrating. And the internet and the self-publishing boom has made people try to get around those. And some are having success at it. And like I said, but there's not a lot of precedent for real success, like mass success at doing right. that. And I talked to, a couple of years ago, I was talking to a guy who was getting ready to, he was in the middle of writing a book. It was a nonfiction. I can't remember the topic. But it, was, it was interesting. It was a guy I was talking about. I was like, oh, that's cool. And I started talking about 
the he should he should when he has a uh, a manuscript he should get get an agent. That's just what you do. And he was like, oh, I don't know if I want to do that. And I was like, well, why? And he's like, well, it, it's hard. And I was like, well, it is very difficult to get an agent. But then I asked him. I said, if you list off your ten favorite favorite writers right now, all ten of them have agents. I guarantee it. You know, they are the ultimate uh, like gatekeepers. I think to the publishing industry. And so if you you can't get an agent in fiction anyway. You can't get an agent without a manuscript. So if you have 10 pages or you have a great idea for a book, you got to go write the book. You got to finish it. And then you got to get an agent. If you have a great topic for a nonfiction piece, you can write a, uh, you can write up, you know, a treatment and maybe get an agent on it. But if you're writing a novel, you got to have a, you got to have a completed manuscript and you got to uh, go out and get an agent. And I go to, I Google that. <laughs> it is tough. What you do is, there's uh, there are jur- writing journals that you can get at bookstores where you know they list off different agents. But a classic trick is to look at five or six writers that you think are sort of in your neighborhood. You know, so look at with, the back. Yeah, with me, there's guys like uh, Nick Hornby, Jonathan Tropper, uh, Tom Parada, who that I'm constantly compared to. And when I wrote my first book. I, I knew that if you love those guys, if you were huge fans of those writers, you were probably going to like my book. And so I started to research their agents. And a lot of times, um, almost always actually, writers in the acknowledgments will acknowledge, thank their uh, their agent, almost always. That's a good trick. But uh, I ended up not getting my agent that way. But uh, I got her through grad school. But that's a great trick for um, because they they – they're looking for new clients. You it's know. a life hack. It's a life hack. I love it. Yeah, nice. absolutely. Nice. Um, all right. So Matt, if you could think back, maybe an anecdote or two when, and I'm not saying you were blocked or something like that, although it could be if you, if you want to feel like telling those stories, but can you think of some times when you had breakthroughs, like you had moments where you're like, I got something and you maybe have had that feeling where you're like, I got to get after this and you just went crazy. Like, mm-hmm. can you tell us about a couple of those? I think that, for me, what I do is I write a little bit every day, like I said, and I try very hard not to go back and read little bits. Like I, when I go back and read something, I try to have nice momentum and a good amount of pages, and then I pause and I go back and read what I've written. And I was having a lot of trouble with getting my last book right. It took four and a half years. Like I said, I had all these distractions. I had two babies and then I had two toddlers and my God, it was the last thing I wanted to do was writing. You know, I just, my energy was zapped and I wasn't doing very well. And I remember I had like, I had all these false starts and I had this idea that I was just going to sit down and I was going to write this book as absolutely conversationally as I could. I wanted very much in domestic violence is a little bit like that, but we're all damaged is very much. I, I wanted the reader to feel like they were, I was just sitting there chatting with them, just sort of telling them this story. And I made a decision to do that. And I had written when I, I sat down after some false starts and I wrote probably 40 or so pages like that. And I, I typed, I printed them out and I read them and I actually read them aloud because that's how I wanted it to feel. I wanted to feel like I was reading this book aloud to you. And I was like, I feel like this is right. This is what, and, and that was a case, you know, it wasn't about plot. It wasn't about anything other than voice. You know, I was just like, 
what makes that book work, I think, is it feels like there's a guy sitting there telling you about this shitty thing that happened to him, and you get through it kind of together. You, you really do. I mean, that's what I, I personally love the, of, of your books. I, I hate to pick a favorite, but uh, that, that's the one that, honestly, I, I, I crushed that thing in uh, probably a weekend. It just it just flowed, and I don't know if it's because I know you, but obviously, you know, there there's a certain tone to your voice that I could, I could easily imagine, mm-hmm. you know, just as, as easy as you are to talk to here and in real life, that does come through the book. So well done there. I mean, that, that's, and it's hilarious, which I think it is, is so difficult to do. And it's just so funny. So yeah, anyways. it's, it, you finally say that because domestic violence, I sat down to write a comedy. I wanted to pack as much jokes into that book as I could. With Domestic Violets, my, or, uh, We're All Damaged, my second book, my main character was incredibly depressed. He was very, very depressed. He'd gone through this horrible divorce. It was a very dark time. And I, I, was, I was like, is this funny? Like, I didn't know. And then when I started showing it to people, they started laughing. I was like, oh, God, good. Because I, think I'll, I feel like I needed it to be funny because the character was in such a terrible place that it needed to be funny to balance that, you know? I think just from an age standpoint, you know, it, we felt like as, as the main character, I could relate to all these sort of cultural references uh, from the 90s and things like that. You know, his childhood wasn't that undifferent from our childhood, which made it really relatable, I think, too, you know, from a guy's standpoint. All right. So, Matt, we mentioned at the top, you know, you've been an advertising copywriter, a novelist, and your your tweets, I mean, they're very well known (laughs) um, for people who know you. So can you talk about differences between advertising writing and fiction writing, and I'm sure it's vast, but also maybe things that you've learned from each that have helped with each. Mm-hmm. I think that um, for sure advertising has helped me be a more conversational, um, kind of a get-to-the-point style of writer. I think that I, I, read a, you know, I read a lot, and there is a lot of, there are a lot of great books out there that go about go about it differently than I do where there's a lot, it's called exposition in, you know, the technical term in writing, but it's basically just the blah, blah part, the narration, the describing. I don't, I try to do as little of that as possible. And I think that I imagine because when you're working advertising, you really have to imagine a real human being who is a part of your target market looking at what you've written, how they're going to react to that. And I think that I've been doing that since I was, you know, 21 years old and in doing that, I do the same thing with readers, for sure. I, I truly imagine a person sitting there. And, and, I, and I'm, when I'm reading my own work, which I do a lot, I usually read everything aloud, particularly dialogue. I start to have like this clock in my head. It'll sort of like a quarterback has like four seconds and they know they're going to get hit. In a, I, I can tell when a reader's going to drift because of advertising, I think, because you've got to get to the point fast. You, you know, it's a limited attention and people are very distracted. And I think that, so advertising I think has helped me very much um, think of the reader at all times, the way advertising writers have to think of the client, think of the, the customer or whatever all the time. Okay, Matt. So again, trying to bring this back as, as utilitarian as possible and making this podcast an actual tool, mm-hmm. um, not not that we're tools, but you know what I mean? Some of like, us are. Some of yeah, us are I mean, tools. Like, take pride in being a tool. Um, it, we need people to, to kind of value this and, and really to get over what, what I call analysis paralysis. You know, you're looking at 
a potential career change or, or a career field that you're interested in getting into, uh, but you just don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I know we're asking you <laughs> to take a very complex, very mind intensive process and boil it down to a few steps. But I think that step is just that first step. Right. So I'm turning this podcast off tomorrow or tonight when I, whenever I'm done with it, I'm waking up tomorrow, get out of bed. I get my coffee. I'm ready to be a writer. What am I doing? That is, uh, you're right. Uh, I think it's easy for writers and I've heard writers talk all the time. It's easy to talk about sort of the romance of writing and, uh, uh how much rejection is painful. Everybody has these great rejection stories, but, but very practically to write a novel, and I think it's important to distinguish between short stories and novels. Short stories are great, and a lot of graduate programs are built around short stories. Uh, mine was, because they work well for classroom settings, but to actually write a novel is an entirely different set of skills, right? So this is a trick that I kind of came up with myself, and I've heard other, it, 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 I think it feels natural, other writers do it too, um, is the note card method, right? So if you have, and if you want to write a novel and you have an idea for a novel, you probably have a pretty good idea of how it starts, right? The first scene, the first 15, 20 pages. So my idea is to sit down and write that right away. And then you're going to fall off of a cliff. You're not going to know where to go. Because you sat down to write that 20 pages, you probably have a, a, a good sense of how it might end too. So you've already got a beginning and ending in your head, just naturally, the middle between the bridging those two is this vast wasteland, okay? So you have to think about starting a novel in an interesting way, which you probably already have a sense of anyway. You have an ending that is going to have some emotional gravitas. There's going to be a big payoff. There's going to be a surprise. There's going to be something, right? So don't write that yet, but you've got it in your mind. Think of that as what you're writing toward, okay? And so write that 20 pages or whatever. Just get that out of your system. And then sit down with note cards and write scenes, little moments, little plot points that you can just casually put in rough chronological order between the beginning and the end. And you think of that as I'm going to write toward this scene where everybody gets in the car accident, this scene where everybody has the big fight before the wedding. You know, it, you're going to write toward those things, and that is going to be your roadmap to essentially earn the ending that you have in your mind. Because the ending that you have in your mind is probably big, and it's probably emotional, it's, uh, it's sad, it's whatever it is. You have to earn that. So think of that, those note cards is the plot point, the maps that you're, the map that you're writing for yourself to essentially earn that ending. And uh, once you start doing it, you know, you'll come up with new ideas. You can't, by no means can you stay married to those note cards. They're going to move around. They're going to change. Some of them are going to get thrown away because they're stupid ideas. But in, you know, especially when it's the first draft, just stick them up there and write toward the next one, right toward the one after that, the one after that. And before you know it, you're 275 pages in, you know? So step one, hit your local staples. <laughs> That's right. Or Office Max. Whichever you have. Your local, yeah. Yeah, they have a grocery store. Or look in one of your right thousand in. drawers yeah. and you'll probably find that's right. Right. What, what can you use if you don't have note cards? <laughs> your <laughs> phone. Your phone. Your phone. But no, the, no, no, but no, this, the physical note cards seem like actually yeah. a key to it. Yeah, because you can, exactly. No, I, I, I think that the visuals really, really cool. I think the biggest thing that is maybe a revelation for me, because I'm not a writer or nor I've mm. ever considered, but thinking. Mm. <laughs> is, that, is that a fact? novel writer? <laughs> Um, headlines. Hey, here and there, every, you know, 
blind squirrel finds a nut every exactly. now. Um, no, the the thinking in scenes part that is really cool, um, and thinking in a temporary way with the note cards and yeah. a, almost a quote unquote um, mobile way in terms of like being able to move them around the board and order yeah. them in a way. But thinking in just I mean, because that that doesn't seem intimidating. No, thinking of things that are interesting just. Two minute scenes. Yeah. You know, and as I know we're not talking about filmmaking movie, but I can't imagine the movie process is, is much different mm -hmm. or script writing or what have you. Um, that, that, that makes it digestible. Um, I thought it was really cool when you said roadmap, because when I think of note cards, I think of Carrie Matheson and Homeland and like a crazy mind that's trying to connect different things. But the roadmap thing is like, there's points. Mm -hmm. And then between those points, who knows right. which turns you take and all that stuff. So I just thought that was an interesting visual. Yeah, and I talked about at the beginning of that whole spiel, I talked about short stories, and a lot of people get into fiction writing through short stories, because when you're 12, you write short stories, and when you're in high school, you write short stories for your English class. You're not in a high school class writing a novel, because they take years, you know? Uh, and so short stories can be all about character and ambiance and setting and just beautiful sentences. But a novel can't be about just those things. It can have those things, and hopefully it does, but it has to be forward motion. There has to be things happening. And those are your note cards. You know, a fight here between these two, an argument, uh, a character has a, you know, a revelation when he or she sees somebody they used to know at the grocery store. I mean, you're just, you're writing toward these things and that's your plot. You know, that's, that's an outline of a book is what it is. You know, note down those twists, those, yeah, the twists. Yeah. Um, so that's step one, no cards. Very good tip. Very, mm -hmm. very, um, I think understandable and, you know, again, not, not an intimidating step. Mm -hmm. What's step two? Who? Well, step two is a lot of people think through outlines before they want everything outlined uh, really thoroughly, an entire plot sort of sold off on in their own mind before they start writing. I cannot imagine doing that. John Irving does that. He's a super famous writer that you know, so many people have read. He spends years and years plotting out these books um, very successfully, obviously, because he's one of the most famous literary writers in the world. Um, he'll spend years and years plotting it out, and then that way when he's writing, he's just focusing on the words. Um, God bless him. I feel so old school to me. I, could, I just do not have the patience for that. I think that you really do have to sit down and write. And in the second stage is when you're, like I said, when I'm beginning of that, write the first 20 pages or so that you have in your head. And that's fun and will probably happen pretty quickly. After that, you have to set up your writing schedule. And I promise you that you need to do that. And it sounds boring and it sounds lame and it sounds like the opposite of inspiration, but I, but you can't just wait to be inspired. You know, you, you have to, you have to sit down and if your schedule is like mine was when I was younger, eight o'clock until 1030 or 11 every night, you, you marry that schedule and you stick to it and you sit there and you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days, but, but really stick to that schedule. And if it's Tuesday night and you're supposed to be writing and you get invited to the bar, you say no. You know, I mean, it, it's tough because you have to pass up a lot of things. Um, you know, I think a lot of writers tend to be sort of introverted, and I never had a problem with that schedule. I sort of embraced it a little bit because I think my natural setting was to never leave the house anyway. But um, 
so it, it kind of worked out well for me temperament wise, but um, you got to marry it because you can't just wait to be inspired. You know, I, I heard somebody describe, I, there's a lot of um, people find interesting ways to describe first drafts of novels because it's more fun than writing a first draft of a novel. One of my friends said it's like giving birth to a cactus. Whew. Yeah, that's that's rough. You can imagine I've never given birth to anything, but I can imagine that would be really rough. That sounds I, like a bad one. Yeah. Uh, I think of it as moving a piano up a hill. It is only going to get up there one way, and that is you to push it up that hill. Brute you know? force. Brute force. <laughs> that is what a first draft is. It is just you pushing that stupid piano up a hill because that is the only, it's got to get up there and that's the only way it's going to get up there is you pushing it. And you have to look at a first draft as, is this lump of clay, this rock that you were then going to chisel into the statue of David. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's going to all change. You're going to rewrite it so many times. There are scenes you're going to rewrite 25 times. Um, so just, just power through that first so you, draft. You just got to get it out. You, you got to get it out. You got to get the raw material to yeah. work with. Otherwise, yeah. You know, yeah. you can just kind of daydream all day, but that doesn't do any good. And that's yeah. not going to get any closer to a, a novel. Exactly. I don't know if this is officially step three, but I'm interested to know what other things or tools you use to become better. It could be reading other people's books. It could be meeting other people, seminars, things that workshops, like what, what kind of things do you do in that realm? Mm. One thing that I did and I, it's, it's kind of controversial and it, it's more difficult than I think it used to be. And especially as you get older, it's more difficult. But I, I went, I got an MFA. I got a master's. A uh, motherfucking, I got what? A, no, no, it is doesn't it? stand for that. It is a master's in fine arts. Oh. Uh, mine was fiction writing. You can do poetry or nonfiction. I think there's MFAs and other stuff like visual arts and stuff, but I wasn't concerned about them. Um, and I decided to do that. I don't think there's anything really, there probably is, but nothing that I know of in academia that is more controversial than that because a lot of people think there's all these essays written, very well-written essays about how it's creating these sort of cookie-cutter stories and cookie-cutter type of novels and one way of writing a novel. But for me, it was great, and I learned a lot of things that I probably would have figured out on my own over the course of maybe 15 years of writing. But you get it, you get it early and you get it when you're, when you're younger. And, um, for me, it was great. I'm constantly going back. I, I, I finished my MFA 12 years ago now, I believe 12 years ago. And I still think about things that my professors said. And one thing in particular, a uh, professor of mine named Alan Shoes, I went to George Mason, uh, in Virginia, um, Alan Shoes, who's no longer with us. Uh, he died several years ago, but he was a wonderful writer and a great teacher. And he worked for NPR too. That's where a lot of people know him. He was the book editor on NPR at the time. But he uh, taught this summer class called scene writing, and it was great. And uh, some, and I asked him if I could take it twice because I loved it so much. And he was like, uh, "Well, I, I, if you shouldn't, but of course you can because the MFA students can do whatever they want." You know, um, it was great. I took it twice, and we would he, he would do this thing where he would have you rewrite uh, every night, write a scene or write whatever, and he would have you read it aloud to the class. And when you started to narrate, he would stop you and say, exposition, he would interrupt you. And what he means by that is everything you learn about these characters should come out in scene. It should come out in what they're saying to each other, how they're acting. It shouldn't be you coming in and being like, he was thinking about his father here. You know, it, it needs to be coming out in dialogue. And and I think that that was so important. And people have been writing scenes forever and ever. But now I think scenes are more important because 
it doesn't matter how often you you read, how much you read. I read all the time. In the time it takes me to, to read a novel, I've watched 10 episodes of some show. I've watched five movies with my wife. I've watched TV shows with my kid. I mean, right now, stories are being told in scene. You know, that is how people are embracing storytelling right now. And I think that if you can make your writing as as close to how people are actually engaging with narrative right now, you've got an advantage. And so that was far and away the most valuable course I took in my in my MFA. I took it twice, obviously. But um, yeah, so we went a long way around the barn there. But uh, sometimes so, that's the best way. Sometimes that is the best yeah. way around the barn. Sometimes barns. it's the only way. Sometimes it's the only way through the barn. <laughs> Find some go. weird shit around the barn. But um, I I have to recommend that if you're serious about writing you get an MFA. You mm-hmm. invest in yourself and you educate yourself. Because yeah. when you get an MFA, uh, you're learning from professionals, you know, writers who are the teachers, but you're also entering a writing community. You know, and I've graduated twelve years ago obviously, but I'm still friends with a lot of those people. I was in I've been in their weddings. You know, there are people that we we send manuscripts back and forth to each other now to this day. It's it's a writing community that I invested in, you know, 15 years ago. So. I, I had two follow-ups on, on this. Mm-hmm. I think this that's interesting. The first one is you were talking about writing in a style that is, uh, I guess, resonant with the way that people are currently digesting things. And I think mm-hmm. that's really, man, I feel like that's awesome. And I also feel like it might maybe it's restricting, but mm-hmm. can you just, is that short chapters? Is it what, what does that mean? It's it can be short chapters. My my chapters tend to be short just because of the way that I that I write in my style. But what it means really is things unfolding in scenes. And you can look if you pick up just a, a novel or a book of any kind, and you you without even reading the words, if you go flipping through it, and you see large blocks of texts. That is the opposite of what I'm talking about. If you see a ton of dialogue, that's what I'm talking about. Because, you know, I think about this all the time. And this is a part of that clock I was talking about earlier when I know the, the reader is going to drift here. When I'm going on and on too much without people interacting, without characters interacting with each other. But um, if you are giving readers a reason to stop reading your book they will take it. I promise you. They are, we as a society are more distracted and distractible than we have ever been, you know? And if I, if I give you my book and say, I want you to read this book, I am asking you to not do a million other things that are awesome. You know, I mean, right now we all have phones that we've turned off for this, but on our phones, we can access every television show that has ever been produced. That is awesome. You know, that is awesome, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a million sporting events going on right now. I could watch some soccer match in China or something. You know, there are so many things you can do right now other than read a novel. And if I give you a reason, if I go on for four pages describing a hotel room, you are going to take that opportunity to go to your phone and do something else. Pick up a different book, hang out with your kids, talk to your spouse, whatever you're going to do. You're going to choose something other than the book in your hand. And so I I try very hard to write in scenes. If something is happening, if there's a cool moment in, in my book, I don't want it to be me telling you about it. I want it to be it being it happening between two characters right. or three characters in, in the book. But I think that's also a modern way to write books. I think, I think you're, you're taking the learnings from this Netflix, Hulu, Amazon prime society 
and packaging a novel in a way that doesn't seem too unfamiliar from the the episodic, you know, sort of things they're watching on Netflix. So I think I think to if if I know what I'm reading, you always you ask that question like, wow, could I envision this as a movie? Or you know, I'm starting to put the the visuals together in my head. I think um, the more you can kind of lean into that stuff is going to make for appeal a greater appeal, mm-hmm. I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I think, you know, if, if someone is like, wow, like, you know, th- that episodic, that is easy to picture. Yeah. This isn't a little highbrow. Right. You know? Yeah. I think that some writers take that, like when people say, I can see this being a movie, I, I can see writers thinking of that as maybe a negative, maybe a put down or a slight, but I don't at all. Like I think of that as the ultimate compliment because they didn't, they, they were able to play that movie in their head. They were right. able to cast the characters. They were able to, to make the scenes in their own minds and enjoy it. So I think of that whenever somebody says to me, you know, I could see this as a movie it read like a movie to me. I always take that as a compliment because that's ultimately huh. what I'm going for. So that, that, that mm-hmm. I guess in the circles, that's sometimes a negative, a negative connotation. What, why, it why is be. that? Why do they, I think, you know, is that cheap in the effort or yeah, something? A little, I think. Screenwriters I, are the kind of the sort of are the um, screenwriters. No, they're are the junior copywriters of the screenwriters. Are uh, we bitch about them constantly? No, because uh, they make all the money. But um, I think that uh, I, I'm I'm sort of a writer that's a little bit on the the fringes of um, popular writer and literary fiction. The true literary fiction folks, I think would maybe take would object to some of the things I'm saying about using techniques from movies and episodic television because you know the novel in its pure form is narration it is often third person you know it is a it is a is a, a higher art you know probably at least in hope uh, but I tend to to balk at that and try to be more a little bit more maybe realistic or, you know, maybe just leaning into my own strengths, you know, maybe right. if I'm being honest with myself, cause I'm not a super literary writer, but, um, yeah, that's, that's what I think about it. But yeah, if you walked up to uh, a super famous literary novelist and said, this felt like a movie to me, he or she might take that as well, you know, violence, <laughs> they would, would it get violent. Writers are not violent people. No. Typically, uh, they would uh, maybe say something devastating and then scoff. That's probably <laughs> right. what they would do. Um, so we, I think we nailed the the top three. Let me jump back to one. Okay. I'm okay. Sorry. I'm sorry. Well, this was one? this was interesting to me. Not We're, one, not step one, but what? something that you talked about, Matt. With the, I know uh, what you're going to say the MFA class. No. Yeah. I'm not going to say another curse word yet. But you were talking about people you've met who are also writers, or at least people you respect, and exchanging. Um, segments of writing with them Mm -hmm. getting their feedback. And I think that that is an interesting thing because I think some people might embrace it like you must have and others might be like, I don't want to hear what that guy says and I don't care. So how how do you deal with feedback and, and criticism really? Yeah, that's a great question. And it happens a lot and it's a very important criticism is a very important part of the process. And the most important part about it is, and this happened to us in, when I was in my MFA program, there were, you know, I don't know how many, I can't remember exactly how many students were in my class. Let's call it 30. Um, a group of seven or eight of us kind of came together. We just gravitated toward each other and formed our own little cohort. And that happened around us too. Others did that too. And essentially feedback is very important, but you have to, 
you have to, it has to come from somebody who gets what you're trying to do. You know, otherwise it doesn't mean a whole lot. And so you find these people that get you and get what you're trying to do. And they're, you're all bought into that fact. And so when they say something to you, it really makes sense, you know? And so that, so that, that's, that's constructive feedback versus I didn't like it. You know, if, if somebody that you have no particular interest in who has said publicly, they don't particularly care for the type of writing that you are doing, if they say they don't like something, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, of course you don't like it. You know, that's just not your thing and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I always think about, um, the, I read the first Harry Potter book years ago when it came out, you know, and so I was in this book club and I just could not have cared less. I was like, this is, wow, a, I was, I know. You I just turned off I so know. many people. I, Stop the podcast. Including Jed. I know. This is you like, saw, I haven't read I've seen all the, all the movies. Jed is channeling a lot of anger right now. He is a, <laughs> a Potterite or whatever the hell they call it. My kids Potter. love it and so do I. Okay. But so, I haven't read the books. I've just seen What do they call you people? So don't, I don't what do even they call know you people. I'm I've, sorry, man. I have seen the movies with my kids and they're great. Yeah. And I love that they excite my kids and that kids <laughs> this book great. reminds me of a movie. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> no, okay. Those, uh, <laughs> those books and movies did very well. I should, know. I think you're right about that. They did well. Um, but I remember reading that book and, and I was like, Oh, this is a great young adult book. And I think I get why kids really like this, but as an adult, I, ju- I didn't particularly care. And so I think, what if I was friends or I was an acquaintance with J.K. Rowling when she was putting this thing together? She shows me the first draft of Harry Potter. And I'm like, eh, you know, eh, I don't know. It's just the kids will like it maybe. And I, that would have, I, I would not have been a good first reader for her, you know, because I didn't, I, I, I wasn't in tune with what she was doing. I didn't particularly care about what she was doing. And right. maybe she would have been frustrated about it. Or she would have smartly tell, told me to go pound sand because she was going to go make more money than the queen. But, you know, the point was I wouldn't have been a good reader for her. You have to find a group of people who get what you're trying to do. And then what they say is very important. You have to listen to it. You know, not everything they say is going to be right. But I don't like that You got to listen to it. Yeah. Listening to other people. So the default choice isn't your spouse. <laughs> well, it depends. I a lot of people, a lot of couples, writing couples meet in MFA programs. And uh, stuff. I hmm. cannot even imagine that. My wife is not a writer in any sense. I mean, she's just very, very far away from that, and so it's just not a problem. But she's read all my stuff. But you, typically, when they're in a, in like a done phase, yeah. you know, I'm not right. showing her, you know, yeah. rough drafts. I mean, that's too much pressure to put on a relationship. Right. You know. Yeah. So the other question, maybe to just wrap this up, um, we've got a lot of things to keep us busy here at the start. What are we wearing? Are we like a wow. scarf? Are we wearing anything? Uh, you, don't, you want to wear something. Uh, I'm an ascot wearer. No, I'm kidding. Um, you got to be comfortable. Okay. You know, I think it's, it's always important to, uh, you know, look as hot as you can. Uh, even, even when you're home alone. Yeah. When you're home alone, I'm, I'm constantly, Cause you look good. Hair. You look good. You feel good. You play good. You look good. You feel good. You write good. You write good. You write well. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't work as well if you say well. Do, but, are you uh, doing your hair? I'm doing my hair every morning. For those, that that right? don't, for, for those who don't know, um, Matt has hair. phenomenal hair. So yeah. like, I don't, I don't require, I don't think that it requires a lot of upkeep. It's, it's just kind of hair. It's, um, it, it takes more work than you'd think. Uh, but no, I, I'm a comfort guy, you know, uh, shorts, t-shirt, uh, sweatpants, t-shirt, depending on the seasons, typically a t-shirt base. There's a flannel, uh, base layer. 
Basically. Shorts over sweatpants? <laughs> Shorts over. Yeah, no. Is anything sweat wicking? That's ridiculous. No performance materials. No performance no, materials. Absolutely not. Okay. Thanks. That's a good insight. That is a good insight. <laughs> it's a solid insight. All right. So, I mean, one thing, I mean, we've gotten good with the, the sort of solid advice, the very mm-hmm. how-to type things, very creative how type things yeah. to, to start tomorrow morning. But I think context is important. I think writing and how much how you started out, you said you did it as, as a thing you did at night. Mm-hmm. You had a day job. I, I'd have to think a lot of people here aren't going to go quit their job tomorrow. They're going to think of as yeah. writing more of a side hustle yes. to start out. And, you know, I, I really just want to be transparent as, as much as we can with the audience. What can they reasonably expect um, in terms of a monetization of their efforts at the, at, at the outset? Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about money. It's, um, there's less and less of it to go around right now. And uh, the film industry is a little bit the same way in the sense that uh, publishers really give, they, they put a lot of money into the home run hitters, the stuff that they is, is a guarantee in the Stephen Kings of the world, the John Grisham's they're making a lot of money. Uh, we talked about JK Rowling earlier. She's doing well. Uh, believe me. Um, I, she lived in a, Van. No, not anymore. Uh, not anymore. No, that's she, changed. She has a new address. She sold the van, I believe, after the third book came out. Um, and she bought a house. Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah. Do not quit your job. Uh, I, I, I implore you not to. And I was shocked by uh, how little amount of money there is. And I don't want to break anybody's heart here, but there's a reason why most novelists are teachers or advertising copywriters or whatever. Because there's not a lot of money to go around. And even if you have, quote unquote, made it, like you've published a book that's doing well, that, uh, you know, you've you've sold some books, you've even been on the New York Times bestseller list, whatever, they're still teaching writing at Columbia or whatever. You know what I'm saying? There's very little money to go around. There's not a lot. I remember, uh, I won't get into total specifics here, but my first novel Domestic Violets sold to an imprint of one of the biggest publishers in the world. And I thought that I was, my agent called me and told me Harper Collins made an offer on the book. And I was like, oh my God. And I imagined uh, Lamborghinis, uh, fur coats, uh, diamonds for the missus, right? And she told me how much they offered. And I was like, really? Like No fucking way. I was just like, <laughs> like that, like every, every month for like six years or like, no, it was like, and then when you pay your agent 15% of that, and then you pay taxes, I had about enough, honestly, to buy a, a mediocre bedroom set nice. at Land's End. I'm, that's, I'm not kidding. And my second book wasn't much better, you know. Yeah. Um, it was actually the exact same. I, I was offered the exact same advance for my second book that I was offered for the first one. And this third one is more by a good margin because I, I, I uh, agreed to a two-book deal, which is great. Uh, that's nice. Um, I made a big decision to quit my steady job, but I have to admit, I would not do that if I was still, if I wasn't married, you know, I, I'm in a dual income situation. My wife and I had a a heart to heart about finances and we decided to, you know, sort of take this plunge together. You know, uh, if if she lost her job, we'd be screwed. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I, I'm, I'm doing 
pretty well. And I well, don't come crawling back to us. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I, I want my old job back. But um, actually, you can have it anytime. Yeah. So there's there hired. Is, you're uh, hired. Don't, hired. Yes. This okay. was all a big ploy. We got him. We got him. High five. Did I just become a copywriter? You're back. Um. Yeah, but there. Not am brief. There's not a lot of money, and you're going to sell your book and still need a job. And uh, and so, you know, what I did in some practical advice for people who haven't, you know, maybe gone into their careers yet. But when I was young, uh, I writing's the only thing I've ever wanted to do. Like when I was 10 years old, I would write little stories and read them to my parents. And I always wanted to do that. But when I was coming out of high school and thinking about college and a major I had a very interesting conversation with my dad, who's a very practical man, a successful businessman. It's just a straight up business guy. And uh, he said, you know, throughout my career, I worked with ad agencies. They would come to the office and pitch us for ideas. And some of those people were writers. There are these places called advertising agencies and they have writers. You should do that. And Normally, and then you can write on the side or at night or weekends. Normally, when you give an 18-year-old, a father gives an 18-year-old a piece of advice, the 18-year-old's like, screw you, Dad. You don't know me. You don't know anything. But I was like, oh, my God, that is brilliant. And that is literally exactly what I did. I mean, that conversation that I had when I was probably 17 years old with my dad, that piece of advice shaped literally my entire adult life because that's what I did. You know, I worked in advertising and I wrote books at night and it, you know, kind of all kind of all worked out, but you have to set up, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're young and you haven't sort of picked a career yet, you want to be a writer, you're going to need a job. So the, the decision isn't to become a writer because if you're, you might already just know that that's what you are. You need to make decisions to make sure that you can continue to be a writer. That's how you shape your adult life. And when things get in the way of that, you need to remove them. You need to make decisions that allow you to sit down from eight to 10 every night and then on Saturday afternoon and be a writer. So that's what, so, that's so the best maybe advice and, and sort of what you did was you got sort of a satellite career, you know, in the writing field, not obviously the purity of, of novel, mm-hmm. novel writing, but copywriting on the side and advertising agency does, I guess some benefits of honing your craft a little bit, you know, finding your voice. And I mean, obviously in advertising, you have to find a lot of brands, different voices throughout the day. Um, But do you think that helps in terms of, you know, just maybe getting to some things quicker? Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely did. I think that we talked about that a little bit earlier. It just, it helped hone um, my, the conversational tone that I have, you know, because I worked, especially in the last 10 years and nine years of my life, I worked for a brand that was very young, had a very conversational voice. It was Under Armour. And it, that really helped. I never heard of them. Never heard of their, uh, their, I believe they're in Baltimore. But um, they, yeah, that was, that really, that definitely helped me. And I, I think that that youthfulness, that conversationalness exists in my, in my novel writing as well, for sure. It's unmistakable. I would like to take a U-turn. Mm. Back to the Lamborghinis, diamonds, and I think you said Hennessy as well, or maybe I just imagined you can that. Imagine pretty that. much any Macallan you want. Okay, that too. I just always assumed that um, you can sell a book and make a movie, and I'm not, I'm not saying that's easy, but mm-hmm. then you just make a lot of money. Right. I know that you've, to some degree, been through that process. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, my first novel, Domestic Violence, has been optioned for film twice. Both of those were unsuccessful. It never happened. And the 16-month options is typically how it goes. Um, 
an option for a movie is basically somebody gives you money and for 16 months usually they have dibs on the movie version. And in that 16 months they try to make it happen. They try to get that you know movie kite up in the air. And it fails most of the time. A ton of books are optioned. A smaller percentage of those actually get made into a movie. It, you know, it's great when it happens. It has not happened to me yet. And, and de- define option. What is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it is an option. So kind of like I said, it's like for 16 months, they have dibs on that book. And they pay you. And they pay you. Yes. Do you so try for- to spend the money real, real quick so you don't have to give it back? You spend it right away. No, the money's yours. Oh, regardless of what happens. It just locks them in. Yeah, locks them in. For exactly. 16 months. And if you write a big bestseller, a really big book, that option is going to be big. It is going to be big. But if you write novels like Domestic Violets that are fine and sell reasonably well enough to sort of justify their existence, it's a small number. Again, we're talking about after you pay your agents and stuff, you're, you're buying another you know, couch for the living room, that kind, of, that, that kind of money. But the way the contracts are set up, if the movie gets made, you get a bunch more. If it crosses certain, certain thresholds, you make more and more. And, uh, you know, so if it, in a, a book like any of my books, if they were made into a movie, they would be considered fairly small movies, kind of indie movies. But sometimes those movies just blow up. Like Little Miss Sunshine was an original screenplay. It wasn't based on a, a book. But if I had written the book Little Miss Sunshine, that doesn't have blockbuster written all over it, right? So I might have sold the option for a small amount of money and then it made $200 million. And I would have been like, Oh my God, you people are all now buying mansions on what I did. And you gave me like $25,000, you know? So it's, uh, you know, that it it is definitely business and agents definitely help. You know, I have a, I have a movie agent and I have a book agent and the movie agent is great. And she is a, she understands those contracts and those thresholds are very, very important. So if I ever do actually get one successfully made, you, get rewarded on how well it does. So you don't kind of get, you know, hosed in the deal. Hmm. But then by virtue of, of having a successful movie in theory, yeah. people circle back to the book. Absolutely. Nothing sells a book like a movie. Yeah. That's just the way it is. I mean, my favorite writer, like I said earlier, is Richard Russo. I didn't know who in the hell he was until I saw the movie Nobody's Fool starring Paul Newman and Bruce Willis. It's a great movie. And I was like, oh, my God, this is based on a book. And so I went and I bought all of yep. Richard Russo's books because I love the guy. You know, I, lo- I love him now. He's my favorite writer. But uh, movie, how I, w- I found him through movies. Hmm. Yeah. So fun story, fun story about movies. Um, I don't know if I'm even I, – I, I don't think I'm not supposed to talk about this, but I don't know if you would love that I'm talking about it. But my first – about two weeks after I sold Domestic Violence, I got a call from my agent that um, Liam Neeson was interested in playing my main character's father. And I was sitting in my cube at work. Like that was, and the book had just come out. And I was like, well, that's it. I should just quit now. I should go tell my boss to screw off. <laughs> that is an amazing story. <laughs> and I should... I, I was so I literally was like, okay, maybe I'll find an open room and talk to this guy. So, so somebody that works for Liam Neeson, like his guy, who's in charge of like going on finding projects for Liam Neeson, I'm on the phone with him, and he was like, yeah, you know, Liam really liked the book, and I was like, oh my god, I was just trying not to freak out. I was trying to be cool, like I have these conversations all the time, yeah, you know. And of course he liked it. Yeah, of course he liked it. I mean, my god, what's and, not to uh, like? You know, and so it just. It's a perfect example of, 
you think, oh my God, this is it, right? And then it just didn't come together. Like they just couldn't, the schedules were all screwy and they couldn't find someone that wanted to make it and it, it ended up just not happening and the option expired. And, you know, I, I, I went back to, uh, you know. I just pictured Honestly. you standing, like being on the call in the cube when you first got it yeah. and just standing up and screaming, I've got a particular set of skills <laughs> in front of everyone. Yeah. I mean, what is he doing now? I mean, God, he should be so lucky. Oh, no kidding. My God. Probably man. producing. No, but making he, billions. He had, <laughs> but he had been just kicking ass. He doesn't age. There's right. something yeah. going on there. He had taken this turn in his career where he just became an action, an action yeah. star. And he was great. Late in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's like a 60-year-old man, and he's kicking ass. Yeah. Right? And uh, I think the idea was, you know, maybe this was going to be an actory movie as opposed to there's no asses being kicked in domestic violence, you know, and, you would have uh, had to beefed up that part. Uh, we might've had to add, add some fight <laughs> there scenes. There might've been some rewrites. There were some fight scenes. Yeah, uh, there, bar was fight. A gun, there was a gun battle. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and you know, there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows. And when you get yeses and you get interests from famous A-list actors, you're like, Oh my God, this is the greatest thing in the world. And then 16 months later, it was like, yeah, it didn't work out. Good luck to you. You know, it, that's just kind of how it went. And, um, hey. Yeah, you know. You've been fun. like, dude, I'm holding out for Ryan Gosling anyway. So, like, yeah. Kidding. Pound sand. Ha, ha. <laughs> Pound sand. All right. Well, uh, before, uh, we, you know, we, we kind of say goodbye to you. Um, mm -hmm. uh, we want to talk about that third book, I yeah. think. Um, by the time this comes out, uh, there'll probably have been an announcement. But, um, right. So this won't, maybe won't be news to anybody. But give us a little peek, uh, yeah. if you don't mind. Is that okay? Is that cool? Absolutely. Uh, it. Right now, the book is called um, Last Couple Standing, and I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure if that is going to be the publishing the published title of the book. I'm not 100% sold on it yet, but uh, it is about a couple who is a part of a very tight-knit group of couple friends. They all met in college together. They all started having kids together at the same time. They all got married at the same time. They all moved to the suburbs at the same time. There's a very tight-knit group of couple friends. And over the course of about 16 months, there's four couples, three of the couples, um, their marriages fall apart. And the book is about the last couple, you know, and how all of those watching their best friends in the world, their entire social structure crumble. Uh, they're left kind of analyzing their own relationship. And you know, there's conflict arises and stuff goes horribly wrong, obviously, because it's a novel, you know, it needs a, it needs, it needs that. But, uh, tonally, is it, is it similar to previous efforts? Yeah, you know, tonally, I, I think that they, they'd sit next to each other on the bookshelf. I mean, you're going to yeah. know that it was written by me, but this is a third person book and it's a lot of different perspectives. Uh, you know, a woman's perspective, a man's perspective. Um, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a stretch for me in terms of just not being, first person guy's point of view talking about guy stuff, you know, it's, uh, it definitely, definitely opens it up. There's multiple, more characters and, uh, teenagers in there and kids in there and you know, the husband and the wife. So it's, it's definitely, it's different. It's, it's, um, you know, in terms of, uh, scope, it's just a, it's a, just a bigger book. I think. Do you feel like, was there a specific time when you had the idea for the, I'll just say the plot? Mm -hmm. book? Absolutely. This is of all the books I've ever written. I can't, I can't think about that moment where I was like, holy cow, this would be great. But I can with this one is I'm a part of a big group of couple friends. And it's it's not as clean as in the book where there's these four people that met in college. We all met at different times and stuff. And some of us were married when we met. Some of us were single when we met and kind of coupled up. But uh, maybe every three or four months, 
the guys of this group, some of us will just get together and have like wings or dinner or whatever. And we started talking about, at that time, nobody had gotten divorced of all of our friends. What if somebody did? And we created this scenario just in talking, would that cause this weird domino effect? And that is essentially what happens in the book. You know, it, I was like, well, that would be really interesting, you know, because the idea is maybe we are all unhappy, but one domino toppling gives us all permission to be like, well, I'm unhappy too. And then, so then everybody starts getting divorced, which I don't think that would happen in real life, but you know, yeah. this isn't real life. It's a book. Right. So Matt, please tell our audience where they can find you, whether it's social media, actually purchasing your books, et cetera. Right. I'm on the, the socials. Um, I don't do Facebook nearly as much as I used to. Um, but, uh, Twitter, Twitter and, um, Instagram, I am the Norman nation. Um, there's a lot of Matthew Normans out there in, on, in the world. None there's, of them as good as you. No, none of them nearly as good as me. There's a famous clockmaker named Matthew Norman. Mm, that's pretty cool. There is a, this is, this, this one causes some conflict sometimes. There's a Matthew Norman who is a British political writer and he writes about like parliament and I am frequently, I get, I open up my inbox and I have somebody railing at me for something I have not written about some something going on in Great Britain in Parliament. And I have to give them the spiel. I'm Matthew Norman, the American novelist. Dude, why don't you say I, something about Parliament Funkadelic? <laughs> just just the only, assume they're talking about the them. The only Parliament I am familiar with is, no, it's, um, yeah, so... Matthew Norman, the Norman Nation, uh, on all the social media channels, and um, thenormanation.com. I also blog, not nearly as much as I should, but I will be blogging more that I have a, now that I have a book coming out fairly, you know, in the next year or so. I'll uh, be ramping that up a little bit, and um, yeah. Pro pro tip for all our listeners out there: the Twitter, the Twitter feed is the the one you very solid. If, if you subscribe to one thing tonight or after this podcast, maybe it's the quote unquote. Fourth thing you need to do tomorrow. Yeah. Twitter is where I do most. Yeah. Instagram is just pictures of my dog, really. Yeah, but that's like, good too. Like sunsets, you know, stuff like that. But yeah. uh, Twitter, yeah, that's probably Twitter. The summer's been compelling from an Instagram standpoint. But <laughs> Twitter is where it's at. Yes. Find me on Twitter, the Norman Nation. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm pumped for the, uh, for the third book. I'm already intrigued and anxious to, to get my hands on that thing. Um, and ready to put it up there on that shelf with the other two right. at the beach house. If you, if you had one, if I had one, <laughs> the, the beach rental, the summer rental. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> Matt, thank you very much, buddy. Yeah, it's been, it's been great guys. Thank you. Hey, good luck. All right. So that's Matthew Norman in that episode. I learned a lot. How about you? Yeah, that was incredible. And I think both of us know Matt so well, and I still think I didn't know 90% of what we just talked about. That no card tip. Um, I'm probably going to steal that. I mean, cause that's just narrative 101. I think, uh, organizing it like that has big applications in a lot of other places, not just writing. I thought it was really interesting when he talked about getting feedback from sort of a trusted group of other writers. Um, I just, I guess I've always thought that writing fiction was different than other types of writing. And you might be a little bit more sensitive about what you take in from other people, but Matt seemed like it was a really critical part of the process. Uh, and, and just how he recommended just keep grinding. You're going to have your good days. You're going to have the bad days. Just got to get it out of you. Um, so we, uh, we put up some show notes at our, at our website, creativehowpod.com. Um, so if you want some notes to take away, uh, we do a good job of kind of summarizing the one, two, threes 
And then, uh, you know, just keep following us at on Twitter and Instagram, Creative How Pod. And you're going to find uh, awesome stuff. So we want to thank Matthew Norman one more, t- one more time. And hopefully you can go out and buy some books, folks. Hey, Jed, did you hear our kick-ass intro music? Shockingly, that's out of our technical wheelhouse here at Creative How. That type of sick sound design is a White Noise Lab original. White Noise Lab is a music composition and sound design studio that works with agencies, production companies, and brands on projects for film, broadcasts, interactive websites, corporate videos, video games, and experimental projects. The chances that that movie trailer you just saw on you know YouTube that's probably a White Noise Lab original more often than not. So whether you're looking to fulfill your sound design needs or simply need someone to collaborate with on an experimental project or maybe an experimental podcast, check out whitenoiselab.com. That's whitenoiselab.com.